Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Being a healthcare worker is hard work, no matter the area you work in. You often work long hours, odd hours, hard hours. You see us at our worst and help us get to our best. And a lot of times you're not really appreciated. Well, you're appreciated here at Loma Linda University Church and Anthem. We see you, we appreciate you, and on behalf of us, we want to express our sincere gratitude for the tireless and selfless work you do every day. Your dedication and commitment to helping others, especially during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, have been truly inspiring. You're the unsung heroes of our society, risking your own health and safety to care for others. Your hard work and sacrifices have not gone unnoticed, and we appreciate the tremendous effort you put in to ensure that your patients receive the best possible care. Your kindness, compassion, and professionalism have touched countless lives, and your tireless efforts have saved many. You've shown us the true meaning of service. Thank you for your courage, your compassion, and your unwavering commitment to your patients and your communities. You are truly our heroes. To make man whole. That's what it said at the top of the letter that I received when I was in college, but forgive me if I wasn't paying much attention to it, my eyes immediately went down to the body of the letter because I was anticipating this letter and it said and it announced that I had been accepted at the Loma Linda University School of Medicine. Happy Sabbath. I'm Dr. Roger Schwelt. I'm a pulmonary and critical care specialist, also sleep specialist, and I've been working in the area for a long time. And yes, the last two to three years have been busy. But I'm, I'm much more than that. I'm a, a son of this church, of this community, of this denomination. And the reason is, is because about 40 years ago, my mother and father, happy Mother's Day, Mom, by the way, decided at the age of 40, that my father was gonna to come to dental school. So he moved our whole family from Toronto, Canada to Loma Linda. Um, and me, at the age of nine, I remember it distinctly, walked in that door on a day just like today into this church and my life was changed. Because you see, I got involved with everything. I was in the junior choir. I was in the collegiate choir. I was in Pathfinders. I was on the media ministry. Our whole family was involved in the media ministry. In fact, when we went on vacation, we had to coordinate that with the church, otherwise there would be nobody running the cameras that week. Um, in, in high school, our youth pastor was Doug Mace. <laughs> I'm telling you, Doug Mace is, is raising the spiritual seeds in his second generation. It's, a, it's amazing to see Doug. Um, 
I remember as soon as I walked into the church, the first thing that drew my attention was the pipes. And I said, you know what? I want to play that one day. And uh, my brother and I both got organ lessons with chemo. And uh, if you remember us playing, it's probably my brother that you remember. I played a few postludes. So the point is, is that I've done just about all of the aspects of a church service except to give a sermon for the last 40 years. So here I am. I finally arrived. <laughs> Love Pastor Randy. When, we, when my wife and I, by the way, happy Mother's Day, Betty. Um, when our, my wife and I got married, we had an existential crisis because you see my wife is a physician, but she's also a member, she was also a member of the Corona Seventh-day Adventist Church. And the senior pastor of the, of the Corona Seventh-day Adventist Church was Randy Roberts. And so the question was, is where are we going to go to church after we get married? I've said, of course, I've been a member here at the university church. This is where we have to go. And she's like, but we love Pastor Randy's sermons down at Corona. And so Randy married us, and uh, you know, we, we went to him to counsel in this very severe issue that first came up as soon as we got married. And you know, Randy took his job as a marriage and family counselor very seriously. And so therefore, you can thank us for having Randy Roberts here as a senior pastor at this church. <laughs> okay, I may be exaggerating that a little bit. Um, our three kids were born here at the medical center. Nicole, my oldest, uh, she is uh, 18. Last year, she gave the prayer conference here at the university church. She was actually the, one of the sermons, and she, she likes to rub it in that she got here to the pulpit before I did, um, Dad. So just remember that. She also is telling me that she likes to go into medicine. She'd like to go into medicine someday. And I'm hoping, of course, that she decides to come to my alma mater, Loma Linda University, here to go to School of Medicine. Because, and I told her, look, you've got a better shot of it when someone who's related to you has gone through before you and made a good impression. And I'm, I'm hoping I made a good impression. I can see actually some of my attendings out there. I see Dr. Evans there and uh, it's a few of the nurses. Um, so about two months ago, you have to understand, when Randy called me and said, hey, could you give this sermon on May 13? I said, of course, very calmly, yes, yes, I would be happy to do that. And then I hang up the phone and I turned to the first person next to me who was Nicole, my eldest daughter, and said, you're never gonna believe this. I'm giving the sermon on May 13. And she said, she just very calmly just put her hand on me and said, Dad, you're gonna be fine. I said, well, why, why am I gonna be fine, Nicole? Why do you think so? And she said, Dad, you know, you've got a better shot of it when someone who's related to you has gone through before you and has made a good impression. So I said, okay, Nicole, thank you. Let's, let's bow our heads as we, as we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for allowing us to be here on this Healthcare Provider Week, also on, on Mother's Day tomorrow. Help us to open the word and to understand more about what it is to make man whole and to heal. In thy name, amen. So today's message is not just for physicians, not just for nurses, PAs, respiratory therapists, pharmacists, occupational therapists, all of the things that we graduate from this campus. And I want to disabuse you of this idea that when we walk around the campus, we can look at the medical center and we say, this is where we heal people physically. And then come to the church and say, this is where we heal people spiritually. Because we should be doing both in both buildings. I don't believe that God wants us to make man whole by having different disciplines at a university level. I think that's good. 
but I think we need to have different disciplines down to the individual provider level. I think we need to realize, and this is what we're gonna talk about today, is that us in the medical profession, dental profession, the healing arts, are not completely doing, we're doing a job that needs to be done, but we're not doing the complete job if all we think we need to do is heal people physically. We're all trained very well to heal physically. My education here at Loma Linda was second to none, but I believe that we're neglecting a great work when we refrain from ministering in these lines of work, specifically the mental and the spiritual, and leave that singularly to somebody else. And despite the fact that I'm trying to do more, I don't think that I've reached my pinnacle either. I think there's more that I can do, and it's not just the physical healing. So the question is, is should we pay, pray for our patients? You know, we have come a long way since the rational 20th century. Actually, we coined the term here at Loma Linda, whole person care, and currently, in the state of California, the California Department of Healthcare Services has actually adopted that term into their own pilot programs. They wanna make sure that healthcare providers are providing whole patient care. But, as Dr. Peter Ubel, a physician and author at Duke University, says about a neurosurgeon who once offered in an unsolicited prayer to an atheistic patient about to undergo surgery, he said, it was wrong for that neurosurgeon to preach at his patient's bedside without first inquiring about his patient's spirituality. It is equally wrong for physicians to act as if patients' spiritual beliefs have no relevance in their medical care. This is coming from the mainstream medical community. Today, think about this, today we live in a world more shattered than ever before with guilt, lack of forgiveness, no confidence of our salvation. The sick are constantly on edge and fearful about what's gonna happen to them in terms of their not only eternal life, but also their physical life, and I see that in the intensive care unit. For us to continue to minister to only the physical needs of patients would be a huge missed opportunity. I have a friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Axa Martel. She's a hospitalist that works here in the old hospital, and in the old hospital, they used to have rooms with multiple beds. One day, she was taking care of one of her patients, and at the end of examining them, she prayed with that patient. And as she was leaving, one of the other patients had overheard and said, are, are, Doctor, are you my doctor too? To which she said, no, I'm not. Uh, and then the patient said, can you pray with me as well? Once patients understand what they can get and what needs are met, when we stop for just a moment and pray with them, the world opens. It changes the environment. Dr. Brian Schwartz, who used to be the president of the Adventist Medical Evangelism Network, tells a story where he, as a cardiologist in Kettering, Ohio, would pray with his patients. And one day, a Muslim physician came up to him and said, Brian, you know, when you pray with your patients, it makes me want to be a better Muslim. This elevation in, in the, the dialogue of prayer in the patient's room is something else. Um, I know that there's been many, many articles that have been published. I know that Dr. Razouk here in the medical center wrote a nice article about praying with his patients in the last edition of the Loma Linda University School of Medicine Alumni Journal, and I would uh, invite you to do that. It gets to the point almost, almost like peer pressure. There was one time when I was seeing a patient in my pulmonary clinic, um, and obviously a lot of my pulmonary patients also have heart problems, and, and he was, happened to be seeing a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Thomas Mikowski, who's a cardiologist and does a lot of interventions. He always prays with his patients, and, and I knew that, and this was early on when I was just getting into this, and I knew at the end of my visit, the patient was there and said, you know, looking at me, doctor, 
You know, Dr. Thomas Mikowski, he always prays with his patients. And I knew I wasn't getting out of that room unless I prayed with that patient. So once people start to realize that this is something that we can do, they love it. And this is not to take away from chaplains and people who are, who are educated on this campus in the non-medical healing ways. So for instance, chaplains and ministers and pastors. But there, there's something about knowing that the person who is in charge of your medical care is also in tune with the spiritual needs of that patient. The founder of our institution, Ellen G. White, said this about this topic. My brethren, the Lord calls for unity, for oneness. We are to be one in the faith. I wanna tell you that when the gospel ministers and the medical missionary workers are not united, there is placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. Our medical missionaries ought to be interested in the work of our conferences, and our conference workers ought to be as much interested in the work of our medical missionaries. This is really important. Look at that statement there at the end. Our conference workers ought to be as much interested in the work of our medical missionaries. You know, we have a tradition on this campus of combining the ethics and the medical. Jack Provencher both was a ordained minister and a, 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 a physician. And uh, this is something that I believe should not be combined just in a university, but also some people have actually gone to that extent to actually be trained in both. It's not necessary, but I know some people who have been members of the cloth and had later in life have gone back to medical school. I see uh, Dr. David Bre Westbrook, almost Dr. David Westbrook. He's gonna be a doctor soon. He's doing that right now. It's not for everybody, but it's, it's there. What are we doing in the church for, in, in terms of this? The conference workers ought to be as much interested in the work of our medical missionaries. Things like New Start from Weimar University, things like CHIP programs. This is what we do in the church because we're interested in the medical mission service. As many of you know, I have a, a, a YouTube channel called MedCram where we would educate patients, educate people on uh, medical topics. And then when the pandemic came around, we discussed things of general medical interest, but we also started to talk about some of the natural healing remedies as well, like getting enough sleep, making sure that you're drinking enough water, getting rest, uh, eating the right kind of diet. And, and as a result of that, we reached 1.5 million subscribers. People are very interested in how to make themselves more healthy. What I didn't realize is that the Crown Prince of Bahrain was one of the people watching. And very early in the pandemic, we talked about testing, we talked about medicines, and because it was a small country with a lot of resources and not a lot of red tape, they were actually able to act on that information and, unbeknownst to me, use that as part of their COVID-19 policy. Well, after the pandemic, I had gotten a call from the Prime Minister's office, who's also the Crown Prince, and wanting to have a meeting. Well, to make a long story short, he told us that he wanted to award uh, the founders of MedCram a medal. So we flew out to Washington, D.C. and received the medal. But before I did, I got some help from our community. I never want to have an opportunity like this go to waste. And um, Grace Elias was able to get for us a bound leather Arabic translation of Desire of Ages. And so in my library sits a medal from the Crown Prince of Bahrain, and in his library is, is a translation of Desire of Ages. Praise God. And this is what I'm talking about with the first part of this, which is our medical missionaries ought to be interested in the work of our conferences. And that's what I wanna focus on today. This hit home for me one day when I was in the ICU and I was taking care of a patient. 
And this patient had overdosed on metformin, which is a diabetic medication. And when someone is in renal failure, as he was, it basically converts uh, lots of lactic acid. Uh, it makes lots of lactic acid. This patient was so um, sick that his pH was actually less than 7.0. He was going into cardiac arrest. We couldn't even ventilate him appropriately to keep him alive. We had to uh, have the respiratory therapist bag with the ABU bag to try to get off enough carbon dioxide manually for an hour or two while I placed the dialysis catheter in, put the patient on dialysis. We were praying for his physical healing. And it was as if they, he was the only patient in the intensive care unit. And uh, boy, his, his lactic, normal lactic acid levels are about two, his were 30. I'd never seen a level that high. I'd, I'd never been so happy to see a lactic acid level of 20 about uh, 12 hours later, and I knew we were in the right direction. And to make a long story short, we saved his life. And I was so happy. It was as if we were giving each other high fives that we had pulled through as a team. And the next day and the day after, when I went to go back to see him out of, after he was in the intensive care unit, he was more depressed then than he was when he had come in because he realized that he was not successful in committing suicide. And that's when I realized that you can be as adept as possible. You can do everything correctly. You can treat the patient physically. It's necessary but not sufficient. And this is the, this is the point that I want to make is that we, when we separate the spiritual and the physical, we're not treating the whole patient. So I started to not merely talk about prayer and healing physical, but also spiritually. We have so many of those who are longing for spiritual and mental healing with the guilt and uncertainty in our lives. Reference what we've had here in the last month or two with the QR codes and the people that have asked these questions. I have never realized that I, that I am sitting in the same pew with people who are not secure in the understanding of whether or not they have been forgiven. Forgiveness of sin in our lives is so necessary for the healing process to happen. For many, they are not sure of it. It's more, it's more powerful than actual physical healing. When someone is, feels like they are forgiven, a weight is lifted from them. And a new countenance is manifested and they believe that they're actually forgiven. So there was an interesting study that was done in 2001. Dr. Neil Krauss out of the University of Michigan and Dr. Christopher Ellison out of the University of Texas in Austin, and he sent out 1,500 surveys. Now, what they were looking for in this survey was a survey about forgiveness, and there was two types of forgiveness that they were interested in looking at. The first type of forgiveness was conditional forgiveness. That means if someone does something to you, you would only forgive them if they came back and showed some, some token of contrition or said, excuse me, or something like that. That's conditional forgiveness. Unconditional forgiveness is when you forgive them regardless of what they do. In other words, they could go on their way, they never had to come back, you would still forgive them anyway. So they had conditional forgiveness and unconditional forgiveness. And then what they did was they sampled them in terms of other things going on in their life, and this is what they found. They found that those people who forgave conditionally have these attributes, greater psychological distress, diminished feelings of well-being, higher depressed affect scores, more somatic symptoms of depression. You know what a somatic symptom is. It's a physical manifestation of depression. Belly aches, headaches, feeling malaise, lower life satisfaction. 
more anxious about dying. This is something I see in my intensive care unit when I see patients. So those who forgave only conditionally had all of these attributes. And those that didn't, those that forgave unconditionally, did not have those attributes. But something that was even more interesting, something that set back the researchers even more than that, was the next thing that I'm gonna share with you. And I'm gonna show you what they actually wrote because they wanted to figure out what determined whether or not somebody would forgive conditionally or unconditionally. And this is what they found. They said, what determines unconditional forgiveness in the study? Here it is. Older people who feel they are forgiven by God are approximately, not 20%, not 50%, not even 100%, but two and a half times more likely to feel that transgressors should be forgiven unconditionally than older people who do not feel they are forgiven by God. That's a pretty high odds ratio. Almost it implies causation. So what you have here is if somebody understands that they are forgiven by God, that they have sinned, that they repent, and they know that they've been forgiven by God, they are more likely to forgive others unconditionally, and guess what? They miss out on greater psychological distress, diminished feelings of well-being, higher depressed affect scores, more somatic symptoms of depression, lower life satisfaction, and being more anxious about dying. So we have two problems. The two problems are this. There are those who do not realize their condition and are not forgiven as a result they miss out of the benefit of the forgiveness of sin. Then there are those that do realize their condition and have either not asked for forgiveness or they have and they still are not convinced that they are forgiven. And these are the patients that roll in time after time after time with the baggage, with the baggage of sin. And what do we do as healthcare providers? I can tell you as a critical care doctor, if somebody comes in in septic shock, my first job in addition to resuscitating them is finding the source. It's called source control. Find out where the infection is and cut it out. Start the antibiotics, find the abscess. What we're seeing here, based on the science, is that the real source of much of this disease is this understanding that they're not forgiven by God. And this is maybe the real source. It's as if I'm looking at a CAT scan and I'm trying to find in the CAT scan where the abscesses are so I can have them drained rather than just treating them and throwing them out. Do we get to the underlying source or not? To get the most benefit from praying, we should not just pray for their physical healing, but make sure that they believe they they undergo treatment, that they are fully aware of the forgiveness of God in their lives whatever it is that they actually have done. And this is exactly what the science would indicate. So the science is indicating that if you want to have better outcomes, make sure that your patients are not harboring understanding of unforgiven sin. Do you see this? Okay, so based on this, it wouldn't be surprising for Ellen White to write this in the Ministry of Healing under the chapter, Prayer for the Sick. That's what she says, to those who desire prayer for their restoration to health, how many want restoration of health? It should be made plain that the violation of God's law, either natural or spiritual, is sin, and that in order for them to receive his blessing, sin must be confessed and forsaken. When wrong things have been righted, we may present the needs of the sick to the Lord in calm faith. His spirit may, as the spirit may indicate, he knows each individual by name, 
and cares for each as if there were not another upon the earth for whom he gave his beloved son. Because God's love is so great and so unfailing, the sick should be encouraged to trust in him and be cheerful. So do we have an example of this in the Bible? Certainly, if this is a truism, we should see an example of this in the Bible. And in fact, the answer is yes. And if we look at towards the end of Christ's healing and teaching ministry, we see an event that exemplifies exactly what we've been talking about today, and it's Simon's Feast. At Simon's Feast, there are two characters that exemplify the two dichotomy, or the dichotomy, both by contrast and comparison to what is happening. So who are the two guests? Number one, Simon. He's the host. Who is Simon? Simon is a powerful Pharisee who was physically healed of leprosy, a deadly disease, but did not fully understand his full condition and his need for a savior. Sitting at the table, not giving Christ the kiss, but interested to hear more. This is what Desire of Ages says. Simon of Bethany was accounted a disciple of Jesus. He was one of the few Pharisees who had openly joined Christ's followers. He acknowledged Jesus and as a teacher and hoped that he might be the Messiah, but he had not accepted him as a savior. You have to be in trouble to have a savior. If you don't feel you're in trouble, you don't need a savior. His character was not transformed. His principles were unchanged. Simon had been healed of the leprosy, and it was this that had drawn him to Jesus. He desired to show his gratitude, and at Christ's last visit to Bethany, he made a feast for the savior and his disciples. So this is an interesting story because this story is recorded by all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written very early in the Christian period, so probably at the same time as the second person in this story was still alive, and that is the woman, the sinful woman, as it says in Luke, and we heard today during the scripture reading. What do we know about this woman? Well, we know actually a little bit more once we can connect the dots because the last gospel is the gospel of John. And John also records about this topic, this, this uh, event. But John was written much later, around 90 to 100 AD. John was very old when he wrote his gospel. And this took place when he was a teenager, many, many years before. It was very likely that this woman was no longer alive. And as such, John could tell us a little bit more about the identity of who this woman was. And he does so. Who was this woman? He writes in John 12, verse three, then took Mary a pound of ointment and spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus. It was Mary of Bethany. Now, if we read the four accounts, and we read Desire of Ages, and we start connecting the dots, we start to find things that are really interesting. We start to find out that Mary of Bethany was very likely Mary Magdalene, the same person, and also very likely the woman caught in the act of adultery. But not only that, but that Simon was her uncle and the one that actually led her into sin, and that Judas was the son of Simon, and therefore her cousin. And what you start to realize is that this is really one messed up family. <laughs> but does it sound familiar? And yet Jesus is in the midst of them, ministering to them. 
starts to put a couple of dots together in your mind. You always wonder, why were there so many Pharisees at Lazarus' funeral? Or why did, how did Judas know where to go when the Pharisees were hiding on the night that Jesus was betrayed? Or how did the Pharisees know that the woman was actually in the act before they brought her to Jesus? These are questions that always linger, but if you put all of this together, you start to see. And what you start to find out is that this woman who was at the feet of Jesus at Simon's feast was forgiven and understood that she was forgiven. And this is the explanation for why she was different than Simon. Listen to what John says in chapter eight. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So we can see with this formula for a true and complete healing, this is how the healing ministry of Jesus Christ is to make man whole. Desire of Ages, once again, Mary had been looked upon as a great sinner, but Christ knew the circumstances that had shaped her life. He might have extinguished every spark of hope in her soul, but he did not. It was he who had lifted her from despair and ruin. Seven times she had heard his rebuke of the demons that controlled her heart and mind. She had heard his strong cries to the Father in her behalf. She knew how offensive is sin to his unsullied purity, and in his strength she had overcome. When to human eyes her case appeared hopeless, Christ saw in Mary capabilities for good. He saw the better traits of her character. The plan of redemption had invested humanity with great possibilities. And in Mary, these possibilities were to be realized. Through his grace, she became a partaker in the divine nature, the one who had fallen, the one whose mind had been a habitation of demons, was brought very near to the Savior in fellowship in ministry. It was Mary who sat at his feet and learned of him. It was Mary who poured upon his head the precious anointing of oil and bathed his feet with her tears. Mary stood beside the cross and followed him to the sepulcher. Mary was the first at the tomb after his resurrection. It was Mary who first proclaimed a risen savior. Notice the difference between these two. One healed physically with a casual interest. The other healed at the deepest levels. Yes, Christ stopped them from throwing stones. It was the first instance of prophylactic medication, right? It's important. He met her physical needs at that moment. But that's not where he ended. He went in and went to the root cause, which was to forgive her sin. Forgive her sin. And that is why we see Mary at the feet of Jesus and not hosting a dinner party. And that is the, that is the difference. When we join hands with the Savior to truly heal, when the right arm of the gospel, the medical missionary work, is joined with the rest of the body of Christ, when our burden is to heal all aspects of our patients' lives and provide true care, the result will be Mary instead of Simon. But, but even Simon was gently converted by Christ once he was made aware that he owed 500 and not 50. He thought he owed 50, and she owed 500. But when Christ showed him that he was the one that owed 500, he realized 
And instead of him reading Jesus, Jesus was now reading him. And so we have a number of issues. There are some of us here who are Simons, needing to understand that we owe Christ 500 and not 50. We are needing the transforming spirit of God. We need to be convicted of what we have done and be transformed not only physically, but mentally and spiritually. And then there are some of us here who are merry. We feel as though we are too sinful. We feel as though we are beyond hope of salvation. But we understand that Christ has paid the 500 and we respond with the spikenard. But we should know that we are forgiven and that we should forgive others. Jesus knows the circumstances of every soul. You may say, I am sinful, very sinful. You may be. But the worse you are, the more you need Jesus. He turns no weeping, contrite one away. He does not tell to any all that he might reveal. But he bids every trembling soul to take courage. Freely will he pardon all who came to him for forgiveness and restoration. Dr. John Shin, class of 2014 and current president of AMEN, wrote this article in the recent edition of the Alumni Journal titled, Steps to Effective Spiritual Care. And I think it's a great article if you want to read this. Out, he outlines seven steps that we as healthcare providers can do to make sure we bring that to our patients. Number one, to bear fruit, we must be connected to the vine. So we need to make sure that we are connected to the vine on a daily basis. Number two, spiritual care must be spirit-led. So we need to invite the Holy Spirit into us if we want to imbue it into our patients. Number three, prayerfully look for opportunities to conduct spiritual care. When your patients are talking to you about philosophically how things are going on in their life, when they're looking at it from the 30,000 foot view, that's when you can come in and talk to them. Engage in spiritual conversation with them to see if they want to reciprocate. If appropriate, Act when we, when we are impressed, number five, is act when we feel impressed to act. So you will get a sense. This has happened to me when I've talked to patients. I'll get the sense that I need to intervene, that the, that the patient needs this. Watch for this. This is, what, this is a skill that you can build as a healthcare provider. If appropriate, end with prayer. Not every interaction with patients need to end in prayer, okay? Make sure that you are using it when you think it is necessary. And then finally, number seven, document your spiritual encounter so that the next time you see that patient, you'll know where you can pick up. Dr. Gerald Winslow, Director Emeritus of the Center for Christian Bioethics here at Loma Linda University said this, wholeness means the lifelong harmonious development of the physical, intellectual, emotional, relational, cultural, and spiritual dimensions of a person's life, unified through a loving relationship with God and expressed in generous service to others. If we are going to carry out the mission of Loma Linda University, Indeed, Christianity, to continue the teaching and healing ministry of Jesus Christ, we must pray with and for our patients, not just for physical healing, but also to make sure they get the full benefit of the transformation of the body, mind, and soul. And we do this to make man whole. 
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for opening your word and showing us what it is that you have asked us to do. We live in a world that reminds us every day that the wages of sin is disease and death. But please help us to understand that the forgiveness of sin leads to health and even eternal life. Help us to demonstrate that to our patients using words when necessary. In thy name, amen. Please remain seated for the postlude. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.